All right, well, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. I want to welcome those of you who are joining us online or maybe from one of our amazing campuses. I got the chance to be with our Greenville Seacoast family last week, and it's always encouraging for me to be uh, somewhere else and know that even though we're in a bunch of different locations, we are still one Seacoast family. So if you would, show some love this morning to our tech and production teams. Make that possible. <clears throat> Hey, whenever I speak, I usually have a little table here with some props, and one of the props today is going to be a box of tissues because I am super sick, so you're going to get the chance to maybe watch me blow my nose, and you're welcome. So the good news is I can't hear anything out of either ear, so this message might be terrible, and I will have no idea. I won't have to listen to it. It's just you guys today. All right, well, this has been a week, hasn't it? You know, it seems like more and more often we find ourselves in these news cycles where there just isn't a whole lot of good things to say about what's going on in our country, but I would imagine that we can all agree that last week was a particularly bad news week. It's one of those weeks that can really shake you, kind of cause you to question whether or not God is good or is he in control or does he even care and I think that's the goal of the enemy that we face in this world. It's to ultimately cause us to doubt and lead us towards deception about who God has said he is. It's exactly how he approached Eve in the garden, if you think about it. He came with a single question. Did God really say? The whole goal is to get us to question what God has already proven about his character. And events like the ones that we saw in Texas and Buffalo over these last few weeks, they're a great way to do that. And just to keep you in the loop, I do want you to know this. We have already deployed thousands of dollars to those communities to support the relief efforts through churches in those areas. And the only reason we can do that is because of your generosity. So we want to say thank you for that. We're going to continue to support that as well. But I want to offer you the words of Joseph this morning, <clears throat> who after he was violently betrayed by his brothers and after he was trafficked to an Egyptian ruler and after he was sexually assaulted by that ruler's wife and then after he was put in prison after being accused of the assault. He was then vindicated and put into a position of authority whereby he could save Israel from a famine. And when he came face to face with the brothers who had started this whole chain of events, he said to them, even though you meant to harm me, God has repurposed this for good. You see, we may have an enemy who hates us, but he can never have us. And so while we grieve for events like the one we've seen over the last few weeks, we do not grieve without hope. It reminds me of a story about Joni Erickson Tata, who She's in her 70s now, but when she was a teenager, she had a terrible accident that left her paralyzed, and she's been in a wheelchair the rest of her life. She talks about the hope she has of walking into heaven one day. Notice she uses the word walking. She says that when she comes face to face with Jesus, she's going to tell him, thank you. Thank you for the tragedy that he used to bring her back to himself. 
In her own words, she says, I hope I can take my wheelchair to heaven. And when I see my Savior, I'll say, do you see, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair right there? You said that in this world, we would have trouble. And you were right, Jesus. That wheelchair has been a lot of trouble. But Jesus, the weaker I was in that thing, the stronger, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. So thank you for what you did in my life through that wheelchair. And now, if you will, please send that wheelchair straight to hell. <laughs> That's what God intends to do. That's what he's going to do with the pain that we experience through tragedies like these. We may have an enemy who hates us, but he can never have us. And while we grieve, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. So here's what I want to do. I want to take a minute, pray for the communities of Uvalde and Buffalo. And I also want to ask you if you're comfortable here and at all of our campuses, if you're an educator, would you mind standing? We want to pray for you too. So Father, we are grateful that even though we have trouble in this life, you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. We thank you that nothing can take us out of your hand. We pray for the communities of Uvalde and Buffalo that you would bring your peace into those communities through the people who are providing relief there. May your presence be what brings them comfort. And we pray for the men and women who are standing right now, the educators in our communities who have always been on the front lines to help our children learn, but now seems like they're on the front line in a whole different kind of way. We pray for their covering, their protection. We pray that we would provide the kind of support and encouragement they need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so obviously that was not a part of the message today, but we felt like <clears throat> we need to say something. We want to offer some encouragement. But it, it isn't ironic that uh, today the message is titled Jesus on Worry. That's not a coincidence. For the last few months, we've been in a series called Jesus on, where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, which was his first public address. And the text today, is a, it's a therefore passage, meaning it starts with the word therefore, it follows something, and it, it, it points back to what was said before it. Jesus talks about worry today as it relates to something specific. But in the passage before, it was called Treasures on Heaven, where he invited us to consider two questions. Are we storing up our treasures in heaven or... Are we simply focused on our earthly treasures? And in the opening verse, Jesus comes right out with it. He says, do not worry, which sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we could figure out how to not worry in our lives? But before we talk about what life could look like without worry, I want to show you a couple of pictures of what life looks like with worry. I remember a story <clears throat> about a man who was desperately searching for a new job. And it had him very worried about his future. He'd been scouring job postings for months and months, sending out his resumes. And finally, he got a call back from the place he was most interested in. And they had a phone interview and eventually scheduled a face-to-face -face interview. And man, he went to work right away. He started preparing. He rehearsed how the interview might go. He went out and got a haircut. He bought a new jacket, new tie. He was ready. He left extra early on the day of the interview, just in case he hit traffic. Everything was going great until 
he got to the parking lot and realized there were no parking spaces. So he started driving around the parking lot frantically, looking for a parking space. Kept looking at his watch and realizing he's about to be late for this interview that's so important. And so he cried out to God. He prayed saying, God, you know how important this interview is to me. Please, please help me find a parking space. In fact, if you will help me find a space right now, I will go to church every weekend. I will be more generous. I will read my Bible every day. And just then a spot opened up and the man said, never mind, God, I found one. Actually, the picture of worry that has been more permanently imprinted on my mind is one that happened when our kids were much younger. When Emma was about four and Matthew was about eight, we were at this family Halloween trunk or treat type event. And when Emma was younger, she was scared of most things. Like we didn't do scary books, scary movies, not even Scooby-Doo. Like it just, we didn't do it. She was just scared of most things. Like even things that weren't scary. Emma was scared of. Do you remember this guy? Anybody? Cat in the hat. Emma was terrified of him. We don't know why. But we would try to sell it to her like, oh, look, it's a cat and he's wearing a hat. And she wanted nothing to do with him. And so here we are at this trunk or treat event. The kids are running around having a blast, getting candy. And then she spots the cat in the hat. Someone dressed up like the cat in the hat, and the whole tone of the evening changed. She would not leave our side. She was glued to us, and her eyes were glued on the cat in the hat, so that he, to, just to make sure he wouldn't get too close. He was all she could see the rest of the night. Even when we took the family picture, where we're all smiling at the camera, <laughs> and Emma is looking at the cat in the hat. It's a great picture of worry, isn't it? It's kind of how worry gets its power in our lives. We hyper focus on something until it's all we can see. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about worry using three questions. What is worry? Why do we worry? And how do we stop worrying? What is it? Why do we do it? How do we stop worrying? So let's look at the text together. This is Matthew chapter six, Jesus speaking. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not reap or store away in barns. Yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So let's start with that first question. What is worry? What is worry? It's difficult to talk about worry without giving it a little bit of definition. 
And culturally, it gets confusing for us because when we think of worry, we connect it with the idea of anxiety, but they're not the same thing. Worry is something that we do every day. We all do it, maybe even multiple times a day. And anxiety is what happens when worry becomes full grown. The Greek definition of the word worry in the New Testament is to be troubled with care in the mind. And I would tell you that anxiety is what happens when worry spreads from the mind to the rest of the body. In fact, the way that we would clinically characterize worry is this a state of excessive uneasiness or anxiety. Rather, this is how we would characterize anxiety, a state of excessive uneasiness that is accompanied by symptomatic distress in the body. But today we're not talking about anxiety, not because the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it. It's just because that's not what this text is talking about. This text is talking about worry as it relates to something very specific. And that therefore at the front end gives us an idea, though it is worth mentioning here that based on the way Jesus sets all of this up, it would seem that nearly all anxiety begins as worry. But back to the question, what is worry? Martin Luther said it like this. He said, worry is a deep sense in the human heart that we know better than God how life ought to go and he is going to get it wrong. It is difficult for us to face the reality that we are underqualified to run the world. Some of you are thinking, says Martin Luther. I like this description of worry. Worry does not take away tomorrow's troubles, but it does take away today's peace. Based on what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount, I would say that worry is what happens when we become hyper-focused on ourselves. In verse 25, he says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Just in the first verse, you see that pronoun, you, four times. So it's not hard to see where the focus is. Worry is something that we all do when we become fixated on our needs, our desires, ourselves. Because we fixate on those needs and desires, because we get so hyper-focused on ourselves, we often become, at that point, hypercritical of ourselves. How many of you would say that you can be your own worst enemy sometimes? Anybody? Yeah, we do that. Even if you didn't admit it, you probably do it. We become hyper-focused on ourselves about all the deficits that we have. I'm not smart enough. I'm not fit enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not wealthy enough. I'm not funny enough. And on and on that list goes. And in a dozen different ways, we determine that we're not measuring up. And so we begin to worry. We become troubled with care in our minds about all the things that we are not. And then we begin to fear that people will Start feeling about us the way that we've begun to feel about ourselves. This is one reason why we so often encourage you to join the dream team here at Seacoast. It's not for us. It's for you. Because when we serve the needs of others, we take our focus off of ourselves for just a moment. Just ask anyone. Anyone who serves on the dream team regularly at Seacoast or anyone who has served on a short-term mission trip with us, and they will tell you about the blessing they've received from putting the focus on others. It can be a healthy interruption 
of an unhealthy pattern in our lives. It's healthy for our attention to be on others at times instead of always on ourselves. It can be a very freeing way to live. So that'll do for a definition of worry. But why do we worry? Why do we worry? Where does it come from? What's the root of worry? Well, Jesus is going to use this part of the Sermon on the Mount to lead us towards an answer. Have you ever wondered why in this passage Jesus is making a big deal about food and clothing? Ever wondered that? I mean, as, as basic essential needs go, these don't seem like too much to ask, right? I mean, how, how many of you would say here in Mount Pleasant and at our campuses and online in the chat, how many of you would say you're thankful that you're going to have something to eat today? Yeah? Anybody? And how many of you would say that you are thankful that your neighbor is wearing some clothes? Yeah, anybody? There are not nearly enough hands up in here. <laughs> in fact, if you didn't raise your hand to that, I'm giving your neighbor permission to just get up and go find another seat. <laughs> the reason Jesus is talking about food and clothing here is because he knows how to be culturally relevant. You see, here in first century Israel, we see a moment where people were very concerned about food security and their status in society. Remember, they lived in the desert where only so much food could be grown, and, and, and that made people worry about their security, where their next meal might come from. This was also an emerging culture where classism was very real, and that made people worry about their status. You see, at this time, most of the clothing was still made in the home. Even if they bought the fabric outside the home, they made the clothing in the home, where it was given distinctive characteristics to represent your family, or your faith, or your tribe, or your profession. How many of you remember Joseph in the Old Testament? He had a coat of what? Many colors, right? In Hebrew, that translates as a coat of long sleeves. And the reason that's important is because that, at that time, it was an indication that you didn't do manual labor. It meant you were too important for that kind of work. In this culture, the right kind of clothes could open doors for you just as easily as the wrong ones could close them. Not too different from the world we live in, is it? What Jesus is saying in this passage is that if you hyper-focus on things like status and security in your life, then you will have to accept the worry that comes with that. Like so many generations before them, they were putting their trust in the wrong things. And when those things were threatened, they were overwhelmed with worry and fear. It was a repeating pattern we see all the way back in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was a prophet for the nation of Israel, and he warned the people about turning away from God as the true well of living water and digging their own wells. Speaking for God, he wrote, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Then he went on to say, but blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. It le its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. And King Solomon, who was regarded as one of the wisest men of all time, he understood this. He said, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. And then finally, Isaiah just settles it for us. 
He says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all those whose thoughts are fixed on you. You know, you read these verses and you can see pretty quickly that there have always been plenty of things to put your confidence in, plenty of things to trust in and worship. But are they the right things? If you ever saw the movie Chariots of Fire, then you might be familiar with the names Eric Little and Harold Abrams. These were, this is a true story. Two men who ran for Great Britain in the 1924 Olympic Games. And Eric Little was a devoted Christian. Harold Abrams was Jewish, even though he admittedly struggled with his faith. And Abrams was certainly the more accomplished athlete of the two of them. But he had this inward battle with the sport that had given him so much. And in an interview one time, he described this tension by saying, when they asked him, why do you run? He said, I don't do it because I love it. I'm more of an addict. I've never known contentment from my running. I'm 24 and I don't even know what I'm chasing. At the start of every race, I raise my eyes and look down that four foot wide corridor and I have only 10 seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? You see, he was trusting in the wrong things. His security and significance were in the wrong things, and it created this unyielding battle of worry within him. David Foster Wallace was an American writer who always struggled to believe in God, and yet he seemed to understand this. He said it this way, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And the compelling reason for choosing the right God to worship is this. If you choose the wrong one, it will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexuality, and you will never feel fit enough, pretty enough, or sexually satisfied. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before you depart. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak as you compare your strength to others. Worship your intellect and you will always feel insecure that you don't know enough. Sadly, he worshiped many of these wrong gods. And two years after writing this, he took his own life. But he was so right. He was right on. When we put our trust in things that cannot be, that can be lost, we can't help but be worried when those things are threatened. Worship anything other than the God who made you, and you will always struggle. You will always be worried about the absence of joy in your life. Maybe not immediately, but inevitably. And that's because the battle for joy in our lives is really just the battle to see the reason for the hope that we have. So if our joy is failing, we've got to stop and ask ourselves, what are we looking at? Because if you're focused on yourself, on your comfort, on your wealth, on your career, on your relationships, then you will, your heart will always struggle to be at peace. The only way for your heart to be truly at peace is to worship the heart maker. And some people don't like how God has set himself up to be the only answer to this problem in our lives. But imagine the alternative. Imagine how cruel God would have to be to allow our joy and security to be tethered to things that can be so easily lost. Just ask anyone 
Ask anyone who's ever lost a relationship they weren't ready to lose. Ask anyone who's ever lost a career they weren't ready to lose. Ask anyone who's ever lost their health. But in his kindness, God designed the human heart to be at rest only in him. To find rest in the only thing we cannot lose. And the reason we cannot lose him has nothing to do with us. It's because he refuses to let us go. You know, I don't know if it would surprise you, but the most common command in all of scripture, the one that you see more than any other time is God saying to us, do not fear, do not fear, do not worry. And the most prevalent promise is the antidote to that fear and worry. I am with you. That's not a coincidence. So if the root of worry is that we have begun to trust in the wrong things, then how do we stop worrying? Well, the obvious answer is we've got to learn to trust in the right things. But before we answer that question, we need to, we need to ask ourselves this one. What are we worrying about? Because if you can figure that out, you might be able to figure out what's taking priority in your life. For the audience that Jesus was speaking to, it was material concerns, food so that they wouldn't have to depend on anyone else, and clothing so they could improve their status in the community. There were two problems with this. First of all, there was no measure of security or status that would ever be enough. It was just as true for them then as it is for us now. And the second problem is that this consuming desire to have security and status, it choked out their opportunity to be generous. All they could see was themselves. They couldn't see the people around them and the opportunity they had to be generous and help one another. Rather than helping the less advantaged person, people spent their resources and energy on things that would just help move them up the ladder. And so the gap between the wealthy and the poor just grew. Now, none of this means, none of this means that Christians can't have nice things. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that we need to stop valuing ourselves according to the nice things we have. And that we need to take seriously our responsibility to help others who have less. And I realize that some people don't like these kinds of passages in the Bible. They know how hard they've worked for all that they have, and they should be able to enjoy it without anybody telling them otherwise. And I agree with you. You should be able to enjoy the blessings God has given you. But are you really able to enjoy them if you've become enslaved to them? Because let me say this. If comfort stands in the way of your generosity, then comfort owns you. And you need to know that pursuit of comfort will never stop for you. There will always be something else you need to be happy, to be comfortable, to keep your place on that social ladder. This is the pattern. This is the pattern that Jesus wants to interrupt in our lives. And he starts by asking the question, can any of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And we know the answer. Of course we can't. We can't do that. But the literal Greek translation here reveals a bit more about what Jesus sees in us. In Greek, the question reads, and who of you by being worried can add a single cubit 
to his stature. A cubit was a common length of measurement at the time. It was the distance from the elbow to the fingertips. What he's saying is, why are you trying to make yourselves feel bigger? Because they were measuring themselves by the standards of their culture, they always felt small. And when we feel small, we will do whatever it takes to make ourselves feel bigger. They were trying to make themselves feel bigger because they struggled to see themselves the way God saw them. They were image-bearing, blood-bought, fully redeemed children of the Most High God, and so were you. But they couldn't see it. Instead, they became consumed with their own needs, doing everything they could to make themselves feel bigger. It's just as common today. People work very, very hard to find security and status in places where it simply can't be found. It can't be found in our relationships. It can't be found in our careers. It can't be found in our wealth or comfort. It's not there. The more we focus on these things versus the one who blessed us with them, the more worried we will become. You know, you, you probably know this, but in both the Old Testament and the New, people are often referred to as sheep. And it, you know, I don't know what pops into your head when you think of sheep, but it was not a term of endearment. It was a, it was a very like, accurate description of humanity, but not a complimentary one. And I had a friend who not long ago visited Scotland. And he said one of his favorite things about that trip was just driving around, that the roads and the scenery were just beautiful. But he also told me about this roadside that, road sign that you sometimes see in Scotland that warns drivers to beware of falling sheep, sheep that would just fall from the cliffs above to the road below. Sounds like a deranged video game, doesn't it? But the reason that these sheep would fall from the cliffs above is they were just doing what sheep do. I don't know if you ever watch sheep, but for several hours a day, they just graze. They walk over here and they eat something. And then they walk over here and they eat something else. They never really look up to see where they're going. They just walk around consuming and eating. It's what makes the shepherd's job so tough because sheep are notorious for getting themselves lost, getting into dangerous situations. And you got to hear me on this. Please hear this. The reason for this is because sheep go wherever their appetites lead them. As these sheep walked around consuming, they sometimes wandered right off the cliffs. It was their incessant desire to consume for their own benefit that ultimately led to their destruction. Sounds eerily familiar to the culture we live in today, doesn't it? Our appetites often destroy us. But just imagine for a minute if there was one sheep, one sheep who not only grazed for himself, but also looked out for his sheep buddies. And when he saw one of them getting close to the cliff, he said, hey, hey Frank, which is a common sheep name. I don't know if you know. <laughs> You're getting kind of close to that cliff. Why don't you come over here and you can have some of what I've found? You know, Paul understood this. He said, look not only to your own interests, but look also to the interests of others. Another version says it like this. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. And then he went on to say, think about it the way that Jesus did, who, though he was God, gave up his divine privileges and died a criminal's death on a cross. You see, generosity is not a good idea for your life. It's not. 
Generosity is something you need in your life. Because without it, your life will begin to orbit around your own comfort. You will put all of your time and energy and resources into building your life around what makes you comfortable. And in doing so, you'll put yourself into an exhausting cycle of chasing something that can never truly satisfy you. And you'll find yourself very worried whenever that's threatened. So generosity is not just not a good idea. It's something that we all need in our lives. It's one reason that we feel so confident saying this. Each of us should practice radical generosity in our lives. Sometimes we call this a tithing challenge. For six months, give away 10% of your income to the church. That's what tithing is, according to Malachi. And at the end of six months, if things aren't better for you, you tell us. We will give it all back to you. We have no problem doing that. Because it's not about us. It's about you. It's not about the money. It's about the heart. That doesn't mean that you'll necessarily have more money at the end of those six months. Though it very well could. And some would attest to that. But it does mean that you will be less worried about the money you do have. I had one person respond very negatively to this, pointing out that nowhere in the New Testament does it ever talk about tithing. That tithing is an Old Testament idea, and therefore he didn't have to follow it. And I tried to very gently point out that while they were right, they were also very wrong. And they bristled up quickly, and he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, often the way that we respond to this idea kind of reveals what's going on inside of us. But I played the game. I said, you know, you're right. New Testament really doesn't talk about tithing. But in Acts chapter 2, it says the people of God held all their property in common until no one had any needs. And in Luke 19, Zacchaeus was so grateful for the grace God show, had shown him that he pledged to give up to half his possessions to the poor. And in Luke 21, a poor widow gave two mites, which Jesus said represented the bulk of her estate. And in Matthew 26, a woman broke an alabaster jar of perfume over Jesus' feet to anoint him before he died. This would have been a family heirloom worth immeasurable value. And in Acts chapter 5, people sold large pieces of land to support gospel expansion. So if we want to talk about what the New Testament says about generosity, then we're talking about a group of people who took it to the next level. They gave away up to 50% of what they had. The person looked at me and said, so how much is the tithe again? <laughs> Jesus starts to consolidate all these verses in verse 31. He says, so, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We call these moments in Scripture divine inversions because they make no sense. They invert our cultural understanding. You see, the way to experience peace with money and material possessions is not to possess more and more of them. It's to learn to live open-handedly enough with them that they no longer possess you. 
And in these final verses, Jesus highlights a group of people who were constantly worried about their money and their material possessions, inviting us to consider, are their lives better for it? Has their strategy of of self-orientation worked? But what if we tried things his way? What if we were to seek him first through generosity and force things to take a lower priority in our lives? If we will do that, he promises that these things will be given or added to us as well. The Greek word here is prostithemi, from which we get our English word prosthesis, meaning an addition that creates benefit. What Jesus is saying here is that if you will seek me first, if you will trust in me more than you trust in your wealth, more than you trust in your comfort or your status or security, whatever else it might be, then you will find yourself. You will find that all of these things will be added to you in such a way that they can become a blessing you can enjoy rather than a burden you have to protect. So let's pray. Father, we admit this is hard. It is hard to loosen our grip sometimes. But we pray for the courage to do it because we believe you died to lead us into a freedom that we can't have until we surrender. We know there are parts of us that need to die. Be gentle with us, but Lord, we ask that you be persistent. We thank you for your mercy, that your grace is the bar you set for generosity. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. For the next couple of minutes, we want to give you guys a chance just to consider two questions. What is God saying to you and what do you want to do with it? You know, for some of you today is the day that maybe you've realized I've been trusting in something else. Something that's ultimately never going to satisfy you. Your heart is fixed on something other than the heart maker. And if that's you, I'd encourage you today, come to one of the crosses, write, write it down, whatever the, the thing or the things are. Pin it to the cross as your way of saying, God, I've trusted in these things, but I'm going to trust in you from now on. For some of you, maybe today is the day that God has gotten your attention on what generosity looks like. The picture of grace and generosity that he has shown us has become so overwhelming that the only appropriate response seems to be generosity towards others. Again, this is not for us. God will take care of his church. This is for you. But if that's you, I'd encourage you to take that step. Commit to a pattern of generosity in your life, of loosening your grip. And if you're not quite sure how that looks, then maybe come today and light a candle. Ask God to start bringing the light of clarity, of truth from his word into your mind so that you'll know just what the next step looks like. You don't have to know what the one after that looks like. Just the next one. Some of you today, you may want to come and let someone pray over you. This idea of trusting God, that's scary to you because you've trusted people in your life and gotten hurt. 
And so this idea of trusting your life in God's hands is a bit overwhelming. If that's you, then I'd encourage you today, come down, let our team pray over you that God would begin to help you see just how trustworthy he is, how trustworthy he has always been. Then we invite you to, as a part of response, to come and take communion, to celebrate the sacrifice that Jesus made to set us right with God, to free us from sin. You don't have to be a member of Seacoast, just a member of the body of Christ. Then finally, we're gonna stand and continue and worship together celebrate the God who says to each one of us, do not fear, for I am with you. So let's respond together.